Let's pray together before we dive into the word. God, there are 10,000 reasons. 10,000 reasons to rejoice and even more. More than could ever fill up this entire universe. Father, as we get into your word today and, and discover um, your path to joy for us, I pray that this would not be my wisdom or my eloquence, that I would get out of the way and that you would speak to us from your word, that that is the power of salvation. And so we look to you, we thank you in advance for the way you're going to use your word to penetrate our hearts, to convict us, to overflow us with your joy. And it's in your son's beautiful name that we pray. Amen. So we started last week on this series in Philippians. Um, we're calling it Choosing Joy in Jesus. The joy that we have in our Lord is a choice that, that we make. And uh, today's message, we're going to be looking at the, kind of the introduction, verses 3 through 8, uh, called I Thank God for You. Now I want to check in with you guys before we get going here. I used to, I, a student taught fifth graders last semester. And on Monday mornings, I'd always ask everybody, how was your weekend? Show me fingers to see how your weekend was. Now, 10 meant weekend was awesome. Um, one or zero, obviously, you know, they'd always have the one kid that was like double zeros. And you're like, what's wrong? I only got to play like 13 hours of Minecraft. It was terrible. I'm like, go to the office. Um, so I want, what I want us to do to start this morning is rate our level of joy this past week. What was our level of joy um, over the past seven days. So hold up your fingers. Give me, give me your joy meter. All right. I see some uh, predictably Blair is all tens. Rana, though, a one. That's interesting. No, I, <laughs> I, I joke. All right. So, and if you want to do it in your head, that's fine too. Now, you, we want to ask the question, is it possible that we could all raise up 10 fingers and say this last week, maximum joy saturation? Is that just some idealistic dream that we could live in a reality where, where we have all, all joy all the time? Or, or is that just a fantasy land? We said in our introduction last week that joy, joy in the life of a believer is not based, hear me on this, it's not based on our circumstances. It is not based on the things that went on during our week. It's not based on our schedule. It's based on where our mind was set. And we said the mind of joy is the mind that's set on Jesus. So to get to that 10, what needs to change is not our circumstances. We don't need a different schedule or a better job or a better situation to arise. What needs to change is us. And until we believe that, until we believe that A, that we need to change, and B, that a change is possible, it will never happen. But change can happen. And, and here's why I believe that a 10 is possible. Because God says in the Bible that it's possible. In fact, Paul, in the last chapter of this book, he says, rejoice always. You know what the Greek for always is? It's always, okay? It, me it means all, all the time. Joy, ceaseless, relentless joy. And even even in the midst of great sorrow, we have had brothers and sisters, I think of the, the Martin family this week, and the heartbreak of losing a loved one, and, and so many of us that have weeped with those who weep. Listen, joy is not mean we always have a smile plastered on our face. It doesn't mean we're always clicking our heels in excitement. We said that the Greek word for joy is a calm delight, that even in the midst of sorrow, there can be joy. 
And if there's anybody who understands this, it's the Apostle Paul. He's writing this letter. The theme is joy, and he's writing it literally chained to a prison guard in jail. He's practicing what he's preaching. He's been beaten. He's been imprisoned. He's been isolated, and yet he starts the letter by thanking God with joy. And this is actually Paul's, um, it's really his most intimate letter that he writes, um, you, the most personal letter, I think, that we'll see from him in the New Testament. He actually uses the first person, which if you want to go back to grade school, it's uh, I, me, my, okay? He uses first person to, just, to talk about to, to them um, over a hundred times in this little book. And, and you contrast this with some of the other letters that he writes. When he writes the Galatians, he's ticked. Like, he writes them, and he's, he reams them out for their return away from Jesus back to a works-based salvation. He goes, you foolish Galatians, who has cast a spell on you? Corinthians, you want to talk about a dysfunctional church. He is separate. It's like he's separating these guys. They are fighting. They are backbiting each other. There's a guy in the church that's sleeping with his father's wife. Okay, you do the math. Even a book like the Ephesians, the, the, um, it's, a very, it's a lot of amazing doctrine, but it's a lot more formal. This is a personal letter. He has a special place. I don't know if we're allowed to play favorites biblically, but Paul loves the church at Philippi. Other than maybe the Thessalonians, this is the most tender, intimate letter that he has recorded for us. And so we start in that tone, verse 3. He says, I thank my God every time I remember you. I, my I, personal and intimate. I thank my God every time I remember you. And Paul's thankfulness, it actually colors most of his introductions. It's incredible to see this. Um, in Corinthians, those, those, those fighting, immature Corinthians, he says, I always thank my God for you. And look, notice why he's thankful. Because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. He goes, I'm thankful that God gives you grace because you're all crazy okay? You need an extra helping of grace, and I'm thankful that he has given you that. Ephesians, for this reason, I, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. He's thankful for the love and the faith that's evident in that church. Colossians, we always thank God, always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Thessalonians, we always thank God for all, you see the theme here, even when he talks to individuals. Timothy, I thank God whom I serve, as my ancestors did with a clear conscience, as day and night I constantly remember you in my prayers. And then Philemon, I always thank God, my, I always thank my God as I remember you in my prayers. Now, it's sort of bizarre in a way that he starts thanking God when he thinks about the Philippians. You remember how it got started. We talked about it last week. This first week, he gets beaten and thrown into prison. And for most of us, that wouldn't conjure up feelings like warm, fuzzy feelings of gratitude. But for Paul, he says, listen, the beatings, the suffering, the jail time, it was all worth it because people found Jesus. And Jesus is the one that brings him joy. He goes, you can treat me however you want, but if people are finding Jesus, I'm going to rejoice. Paul planted this church about 10 years prior to when he wrote this letter. So it's been about 10 years um, since he was there with them in the beginning. And he starts by thanking God and, and, and rejoicing, thinking of them fondly. And I was thinking in my life, like 10 years ago, where was I at? And I, I was in um, college, 
in Missouri, uh, going with New Tribes Mission. And I was going to this church in Missouri called the Rock House. Now, the Rock House was originally in a church building that was made out of rock. That's why they called it that. They moved. By the time I got there, they were in a, a more traditional building. But the name still applied. This was a group. You talk about bring me your huddled masses. Um, this group had, they had, they would bust people in from um, rehabilitation centers. They would bust people in from halfway houses, people transitioning from prison to back into life. Um, and so it was, you had a lot of tattoos and spiked hair and motorcycles. And they even had a smoking section out in the parking lot. I hadn't seen a lot of that in the church. But I will tell you what, you wanted to walk in. You wanted to put one hand over your wallet, sure. You know, you wanted to make sure that there was a background check for the children's workers. Um, but this was a group of people that loved Jesus. And this was a people that loved me. And welcomed me right in with open arms. And it was an amazing experience. There are still people there that I am friends with to this day. Now, I didn't plant the Rock House. I wasn't a leader in the Rock House like Paul was. But I'm still united with that group of believers in Jesus. And I thank my God every time I remember the Rock House. And and who is there in in your life, you think 5, 10, 20 years ago, people who were integral in, in in your faith, in your spiritual growth? I mean, maybe pastors or Sunday school teachers or other believers and friends who walked alongside of you, let's take time, like Paul is here, to remember them and thank God for them. Because, and this is, this is why, an attitude of gratitude, even though it's a little bit of a cheesy of, of a saying, um, it's, it's key in finding our joy in Jesus. Imagine how transformational your life would be When someone comes to mind, and instead of us rolling an eye at them, instead of us thinking about all of their flaws, instead of us judging them, um, or or even being jealous of them, that when people come to our minds, that we thank God for them. Because I'm telling you, God doesn't put people in your life on mistake. And every person that's coming to your path, even if they annoy you, they're from God. He's teaching you something from them. And we can thank God for everybody in all situations. And I think it will cause us to see people very differently. It will cause us to see people a lot more like Jesus sees them. Then in verse 4, he says, In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy. Here is one of the, 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 the main components of Paul's joy is in the Philippians themselves. He finds joy in them. Other passages, he talks about church. He says, you are my joy. You are my crown. And so specifically, he's thankful and joyful for four things in this, what we're going to look at this morning in these few verses. He's thankful for their partnership in the gospel with him, their perfection when the Lord returns, their participation in the ministry of grace, and their place in the apostle's heart. Pastor Larry would be proud of my alliterative skills there. Um, so first of all, partic- the, their partnership in the gospel, verses 5 and 6. Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Notice that I've strategically underlined some words in those verses. Those are time references in, in, in the life of the Philippian church. And Paul, he wants to look at those, and he starts out with the first day, the first day, it looks in the past, past, present, and future, and he remembers the time 
when he first came there and Lydia, we talked about her last week, Lydia and a group of women opened their hearts to Jesus and opened their home to Paul. Lydia's house is actually in Acts 16. That's where the church in Philippi starts meeting, in the house of Lydia. And he also remembers the Philippian jailer and his whole family that comes to know Jesus and welcomes Paul and Silas into their home after the prison break. And he remembers from day one, I remember when you partnered with me in the gospel, when you found Jesus and you started working with me to make him known to other people. And he says, from the first day until now, they're continuing to partner with him. And in a general sense, they're still out there making Jesus known in their region and beyond, but specifically with Paul, because remember we said they sent Epaphroditus to Paul, one of their leaders, to comfort him. And they sent money his way to help him. And they've been praying for Paul. He says, you've been working with me in this Jesus thing since day one, and you've continued until this day, and so that's the present. And then we look to the future, the day of Christ Jesus. Paul is confident that what started with Lydia has continued to the present day as he's writing that, will be brought to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. And the day of Christ Jesus means that glorious day, that glorious day that we look forward to when we look up into the sky. It's not a bird, it's not a plane. It's the king of kings, and he's coming back for us. He says, on that glorious day, God will have completed the good work that he started in you, and he started in me. And it's amazing to see here, Paul rejoices ahead of time. He he says, I'm joyful for what happened then, what is happening now, and I'm already rejoicing for what's going to happen in the future because I know my God, and my God is the kind of God that what he starts, he finishes. And his joy is wrapped up in the progress of the gospel. He says, my joy is predicated on one thing, and that's to know Jesus and to make him known to other people. He has a laser focus on what he's called to do. And so his first cause for joy in the Philippians is their faithful partnership with him in making Jesus known. And that's how we can have joy in the midst of suffering. When we realize the purpose of God, that what he's doing in our lives is growing Jesus in us and spreading Jesus through us. And then no matter what comes our way, we know that he's using it for that purpose, for his glory and for our good and for the good of others. We're not here primarily to be comfortable and entertained and happy. Second thing he thanks God for, rejoices about in the Philippians, perfection when the Lord returns. Again, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Now, in context, I think he's definitely talking about this gospel being moved out of the Philippians into others. But I also think he's referring to the spiritual growth that each of us experience in our lives. And it's a process, what we call sanctification. Now, that's a big, I paid a lot of money for seminary word, but we can break it down into human speak. Um, There are three aspects to our salvation. There's justification, sanctification, and glorification. And I just use those words, that in case you read an old book and you see them, you know what we're talking about. But let's put it in language that we can actually use. To be justified is to be declared right in God's sight. And this is our initial salvation. We are forgiven, and we stand before God blameless. We have a right standing with the Father. Because of what Jesus did, we are washed in his blood, covered, clothed in his righteousness. This is being saved from sin's penalty. The wages of sin was death. Jesus paid it for us. And now we are no longer under the penalty of sin. But 
There is nobody who gets saved and from day one just never, has anybody experienced this or you got saved and then it's like you just never sin anymore? It's like, this is awesome. I never have a sinful thought. I never have a weird feeling. I'm, all, I'm never selfish. I've given all my money away. I'm a monk now. It's amazing. Like, I just am on the Jesus track, right? No, that's not reality. There's a process that follows the initial salvation. It's called sanctification, which means being made right. See, what happens is how we live begins to match up with who we are. We are declared right in Jesus' sight, but now he's growing us. God is growing us to become more like Jesus so that our condition matches our uh, position. This is being saved from sin's power. See, as long as we're still in this earthly body, sin is still there and we can go back to it. But we are in the process by the Spirit of being freed from from sin's power to become like Jesus. And then thirdly, glorification is to be right. And that day, and this is going to happen at the resurrection when we get new bodies, and we see him as he is, John says we will become like him perfectly. And in that sense, we are saved from sin's presence. When we will no longer be in the presence of sin, we will no longer sin. I cannot wait for that day. But in all three aspects of our salvation, God is the one who's doing it. You see, he says, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you. I didn't begin this work. I did not save myself. I don't have that capacity. But he who began a good work in me will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Here's the promise. God says, what I started in you, those that I justified, those that I made right in my sight, I am also going to grow them to become more like Jesus. And when I present the bride before my son on that glorious day, it will be spotless and blameless because of the work of God and not because of anything that we've done. It's his grace and it's our faith. And here's the question we want to ask ourselves. Am I confident that God will complete the good work he began in me? Like, let's put this on the ground. If we're honest, we sometimes ask the question, has God given up on me? Like, did, did I, have I messed up too many times? That's what, that's what Satan wants us to think. Have I gone, have I wandered too far? Have I done something too heinous? It seems like God's not there. It, it seems like he, he was doing all these great things in my heart, and, and, and now he's not. Where is he? Now, there's a lot of things we could speak to that, but what I want to bring out today is to believe the specific promise that what God started in me, he will complete because God is a God that keeps his promises. And that sanctification, that work that he's completing in us is, is primarily love. And Paul models that here in the next two verses. The next thing he's joyful for is their participation in this thing we call grace. It is right for me, verse 7, to feel this way about all of you, since I have you in my heart, whether I'm in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. He says, the reason that I feel this way for you is because I understand that I'm not struggling alone. There are other people in my life who are endeavoring with me and endeavoring like me. You know, this past week, I faced some personal struggles in my life, some questions and challenges kind of in the ministry that God has me in. But I found great, great encouragement in the fact that I didn't have to struggle through those things alone. 
And I was thinking back on this week and all the people that I, that I struggled with. You know, I had lunch with Alan on Tuesday. I had lunch with Blair on Wednesday. I had lunch with Drew on Thursday. I'll tell you, it's awesome being a pastor. You get to eat all the time. <laughs> and a lot of times they pay for it. Um, I struggled with my family. I had talks with my mom. I, I confessed to and, and, and talked with, with Jacob and Ian. I had a late night powwow with Jay and Isaac. I, I, I had at times with the staff. And I looked back at this week and I go, man, there were some hard things that I went through this week, but I did not go through those by myself. And to see other brothers and sisters who have the same struggles, who have the same questions, who are struggling to know the same Jesus There's great joy in knowing that we're not alone, that God has put other believers alongside of us as a way of his grace. And ministry, doing God's work, it creates bonds of friendship with one another as we walk in this thing together in the Lord. Paul, see, Paul was not just some Jesus machine sort of cranking out souls for the kingdom. Like there's some conveyor belt or cookie cutters. Like I got another believer, believer 585, believer 586, and just kind of cranking them out. Paul is a human being and he has compassion for other human beings. And he's allowed his life to get messy and intertwined with these people that he's ministering to. Paul saw people as people. What God has called us to, what we call ministry, which just means serving other people and and pointing them to Jesus. It's not about numbers. This this cannot be about how many people do we get here on Sunday morning sitting in our seats? How many people do we get participating in our programs? How many buildings do we have? What's the offering level? You know, those are not, that's not ministry. Ministry is first and foremost about people. It's about people. And I thought about this, you know, we had a, a birthday party, a uh, staff birthday party for Pastor Larry. There he is in the corner hiding out. Um, we had, he turned uh, 95. That was really exciting. Um, doesn't look a day over it. And uh, no, he, we, uh, but we had, you know, Lisa's kid, you know, Manny and Autumn were there and their babysitter came with them, Amber. And we just had a time of laughing and I bought everybody Mickey Mouse hats and we ate cake And we didn't even talk about a single thing on our agenda that week. Because ministry, if we we lose sight of people as people who have birthdays and who have heartache and who have joy and who have struggles, um, then we've missed the true heart of the gospel. We've missed the true heart of the gospel. And it's so easy to lose sight of that where we just want people to attend events and participate in programs and say the right words, but but we've lost the true meaning when we fail to see people as people, which it leads us to our final cause of joy that Paul has for the Philippians, their place in his heart. Verse 8, and I love this verse. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. He says, the affection that I have for you, look, it doesn't come from me ultimately. It's the affection of Jesus. I love you with the love of Jesus. And, And this love is actually an evidence of our salvation. First John we went through this together, you remember, we know that we have passed from death to life. How? How do we know? Because we love each other. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Because if, if you don't love people, then you don't know me. 
because I am a God of love, and if my spirit's in you, then you're going to love as well. Now again, this is, a, this is growth, right? We don't day one get saved and then just love everybody perfectly. That's grace. That's messy. That's day by day, Jesus chipping away at our unlove and loving in us and through us. But we're moving in that direction. And as a believer, have you ever noticed that you'll have times, you'll have affection for people in your life that you would normally have zero affection for? And I don't mean to make this immediate jump, but, you know, someone like Blair, um, he is a llama-punching maniac. Like, Blair is very different than I am. And in a lot of ways, I could be like, Blair's crazy, you know? And, and in some ways, that's, that's true. That is absolutely, absolutely true. No, I didn't give him any warning on this. But you know what I've found? In the last few months in particular, spending time with Blair, and we get together a lot of times, three, four times a week and, and sometimes, and I love Blair, like brotherly. I love him. You know, I love him. Uh, but I have a real af- affection toward him. You know what that is? That's Jesus' love in me. And what's going to happen as we grow as believers is we're going to have affection for people. It's going to be Jesus' affection and it's the good work that he started in us and will finish. Now, now look at what he says, though. This is where it gets tricky. Um, not this part. God's love is poured out into our hearts. This is the love of God in us. He says, God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. Notice Paul does not say, I long for some of you. I long for the ones of you that I like, the ones that have common interests with me. I long for my clique, my peeps, right? He says, I long for all of you. And I ask myself, who am I failing to lump in the all of you? There are some people who I have a natural inclination to get along with, common interests, personalities jive. But then there are people where it's like, I don't love him. I don't love her. There's a poem that says, simply, he says, to love the whole world for me is no chore. My only real problem is the guy next door, right? And so what's he saying? Man, a theoretical love, that's easy. Yeah, God called me to love, and I love people. I don't love my neighbor, right? It's easy to love in theory. It's a lot harder to love the person you're talking to. But he says, I long for all of you, and that's the Jesus love in us, because Jesus love is not a respecter of persons. We don't love people because of who they are. We love them because God is love, and he is in us regardless of their deserving our love. But you might say, well, what happens when I don't feel that love? Because there's a lot of people in my life that I don't feel that love for. So what do I do with that? Well, C.S. Lewis, as always, um, he explains this so well. He says, it would be quite wrong to think that the way we become loving is to sit trying to manufacture affectionate feelings. So I sit there and I'm like, I gotta love Blair. 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 And I just try to like conjure that up inside. It doesn't work, right? It doesn't work. This is what he says. The rule for us is perfectly simple. Do not waste your time bothering whether you love your neighbor. Act as if you did. Act as if you did. As soon as we do this, we learn one of the great secrets When you are behaving as if you loved someone, you will presently come to love them. See, what he's saying is love is something we do. It's not primarily something we feel. And as we do love toward people, he says those feelings will follow. It's not like, I don't love you. Like, as we 
love people, as we do love toward people, he says you will start to feel that love for them. And it's not like, guaranteed of when that's going to happen, but it will follow. So how do, how do we do this? I want to I kind of wrap things up by a couple practical ways that we can stimulate the affection of Jesus for each other. There's four ways. The first one is in mind, in our mind. Paul said, I thank my God every time I remember you. And you notice in all those intros, he says, I remember you, I thank you as I'm praying for you. See, we're not going to love people if we're not thinking about them. If they're not on our mind, he is so concerned. His heart is so heavy for these people. He's praying for them. He says, I pray for you constantly. Are we praying for the people in our lives? Are we thinking about them and what they're going through? Their struggles, their their trials, their joys. We got to think about other people. That's where it starts to love people. But the second one is in word. It's not just enough just to think about them and to pray about them. We got to speak it. We got to tell people. And, and Marian Evans, I like the way she said this, and it's poetic. She said, I like not only to be loved, but also to be told that I am loved. I am not sure that you are of the same kind, but the realm of silence is large enough beyond the grave. This is the world of literature and speech, and I shall take leave to tell you that you are very dear. And what she's saying is, man, in our lives, and have you experienced this? Someone comes up to you and just says, man, I'm so thankful for you. And, and they, they, they say that they've been praying for you, that you've been on their heart, that they've taken time out of their day just to think about you, to pray for you. There's a word of encouragement. Man, how far that goes for us. We need to be speaking love toward each other. But that doesn't stop in word either, in mind and word, and then in deed. Indeed. First John, dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. I don't think that contradicts what we just said. He's saying, don't just stop with the words you got to show them an action. Okay? James 2 talks about the uselessness of, love, of, of faith without that kind of action. James 2, in the same way, faith by itself, if not accompanied by work, by action, it's dead. In other words, he's saying it's useless. So if I tell you, I love you, man, but then I never do anything that shows that, that backs that up. I never spend any time with you. I'm never giving toward you. I'm never showing that love in the way that I treat you. Man, it's a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. We must love indeed. And then finally, in heart, 1 Peter 4, 8, above all, love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. There's one thing I can guarantee you if you jump into this grace thing with other people in the community of Jesus, we're gonna get hurt. It's going to happen. It's gonna be messy um, because we're, we're a bunch of sinful people that haven't been glorified yet. That's gonna happen. But, he says, when we love each other deeply, love covers those sins. We're talking about forgiveness. Uh, 1 Corinthians 13, 5 says, love keeps no record of wrongs. We don't sit there going, well, she did that to me, and then he did that to me. And And we just start kind of getting this animosity toward each other. He goes, no, we forgive. Christian community, we don't love other people because they deserve it. If we did, then we wouldn't be loving anybody, and God wouldn't be doing anything good for us. It's his grace his grace. We love people because Jesus. And this community, it's, it's a community that confesses and repents to each other. Man, I'm sorry I said that to you. I'm sorry I pushed you that way. You know, I, I repent of what, what I've done and the way that I've behaved. And then we forgive and we reconcile. That's why I open this letter with grace and peace to you. It's God's grace as the basis for our relationships together. And then the result is peace. Peace with God and peace with one another. 
So, so how do we get to this level 10 joy? This kid's got it. How do we get it? Ironically, it's not by, our, it's not by putting our eyes on ourselves. It's by taking our eyes off of us and onto other people and thanking God joyfully for those that he's put in our lives and to love people in, in mind and in word and in deed and in heart as we partner together to know Jesus and make him known. Let's pray. Father, it is hard sometimes to believe that you're going to finish the good work that you've started. And, and when we look at things um, with the eyes of sight and not the eyes of faith, it's easy to be overwhelmed by the world's waves, the trials in our lives. Um, sometimes we feel like there's no hope for us to ever change or people in our lives to ever change. But God, you've promised us in your word, we read it today and we claim it together, we believe it together, that you started a good work in us and that you will continue it until the day of Christ Jesus when you finish it because you're a God who keeps his promises. Father, I pray that we would believe that promise, that we would cling dearly to Jesus and that we would endeavor to glory in nothing else but to know Jesus and make him known to this world. May we be a community of people that love each other in mind and in word and in deed and in heart, that we would forgive as we've been forgiven. We love you and we thank you for what you've started and we praise you ahead of time that you're going to finish it. And it's in your son's beautiful name that we pray. Amen.